Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Women are often the last in line when it comes to taking care of their health. First comes the family, kids, significant others, etc. Then comes work, then a myriad of other responsibilities, and then finally, then... They've got a chance to take care of themselves. Now, for the first several decades of their adult lives, their main doctor they see is their gynecologist. Dr. A.S. Sultan is a gynecologist, and she's heard it all when it comes to complaints that women have about a variety of health issues, frequent inspection, infections, irritation, irregular cycles, uh, you name it. Now, she's in the studio here today to share her expertise in common gynecologic issues that women face throughout their lives and how to make their lives Feel more normal and healthy as time goes on. Now, this show, as always, is your show. You can always join us. We're going to talk a little bit about the basics on gynecology in just a few moments. But as always, if you've got a question, we're here live in the studio. You can give us a holler at 941-3689, toll-free 877-941-3689. Dr. A.S. Alton, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the invitation, Taffy. Now, let's talk a little bit about gynecology. Some people may not understand how you become a gynecologist. So we both went to four years of medical school. Then you pick a specialty. I picked internal medicine. That's mainly taking care of adults of all different conditions and medical problems. And that's after medical school, that's where you picked obstetrics and gynecology. Correct. And then how long do you do your training in that particular field? For obstetrics and gynecology, it's usually a four-year residency, and then if there's any kind of specialization that you do, there's additional training, but it's usually four years. And so you did part of your training here? Correct. And then you went off and worked at Stanford for a few years? Correct. And luckily, we got you back here. I'm so happy to be back, too. Well, on the weather, it's definitely a selling point. But also, you know, right before the show, we were talking about how happy people are, how friendly they are, how, you know, it's just, it's a different aloha kind of atmosphere here. Exactly. I mean, the aloha spirit just lives and breathes in Hawaii. And then the ohana family is huge. And that's what I missed when I moved away and what I didn't realize we had until I moved here in the first place. So I'm so happy to be back. All right. Well, we're glad you are. Thank you. Now, you've been back here for how long? I've been back here um, on and off for the past year, opened my practice early this year, actually. Downtown. Downtown, Honolulu. Fantastic. A lot of women need medical care. They're, down, they're downtown at their office or doing a variety of different work-related activities, and you're right there. Exactly. Perfect location. Now, why would somebody need to see a gynecologist more than they would need to see someone like me? Obviously, we're talking about women here. So women will often see the gynecologist for the first time, maybe in their late teens, or early 20s. Why you more than me? So there are things that, as gynecologists, we can speak to um, more than internists. Um, we are focused in specific areas, that being of breast and, and um, female pelvic health. Um, you mentioned that uh, sometimes we will see people as young as in their teens. And I've had a lot of uh, moms recently ask me when's a good time for their uh, young girls to come see me. And I say it really all depends on what you want out of it. 
sometimes it's just nice to introduce them to a gynecologist so they get a sense of what are the appropriate things that they can talk about um, if they want to then come back and talk about contraception they're not talking for the first time to some stranger so you know we can start earlier and then that's usually with the younger girls. It tends to be more sexual health, contraception, um, just getting to know their bodies even, which are changing rapidly during that time. Later on, it tends to be more focused on the reproductive age years, pregnancies, um, getting your body re ready for that if you're so inclined, or just maintaining your health. And uh, one of the focuses for the practice is preventative health, just as yours is, um, making sure that you build up your um, self so that you can take yourself to the older years, the, the later years, in a, the most healthy state that you can. Um, during that time, infections may come and go, um, and that's one of the things that a lot of the women will come and see. And you're just coming mostly for annual exams, so just kind of seeing how you are. Later years, it tends to more focus on the menopausal time frame. You've lost the hormones in your body. You've, you're now undergoing changes again. Um, what does that mean to your overall health? Is there something that we can do about it? Um, specific areas may be problematic. A lot of women nowadays are just kind of suffering in silence and not realizing there's a lot that we can do. Well, and we're going to talk more about that. We'll sort of go through different age groups. So, you know, younger women in their teens, early 20s, when should they get their first pap smear? Age 21, irregardless of sexual activity. And how often do women need pap smears? I know the guidelines have changed over the last few years, and now there's like an ending point where there never used to be. So in general, for a normal, healthy woman, how long or how often should they get pap smears? That's a kind of a tricky question. So I know that you, you mentioned that there are guidelines out there, and the guidelines are nice because there's algorithms. If this, then that, that kind of thing. So in general, if you have regular, if you've had no abnormal paps, then depending on your age, it could be anywhere from as frequent as every year to every three years to every five years. Um, that said, it, there's usually a caveat that speaks to the fact that the pap is looking for abnormal cervical changes, which is caused by the HPV virus, okay, the human papillomavirus. And that we know is a sexually transmitted virus. So it also has to do with your sexual activity, if you will. So if you're with a stable partner, then that five years makes sense. So for a lot of women who say, my gynecologist said I don't have to come back for three years or five years, that's really true. No. No. You do not have to come back for a pap smear. So that's the one thing that I always say. Even though you may not need the pap test for five years, you still need to come see me annually or a yearly basis. Because there's other things that you do. Exactly. So for the younger crowd, we now focus a lot on HPV vaccination. You know, the human papillomavirus is one of the few viruses that we can say directly causes cancer. Boom, direct connection. There's a couple of others, but we know you get exposed to HPV. That doesn't always cause cancer, but if you have cancer, it's from HPV. So when we have that such of a direct connection, a couple of years ago, the HPV vaccine came out, and it seemed like it was a bit controversial. Some of the issues seem to seem to stem from the age at which they suggested that women get vaccinated. 
What is your thought on the HPV vaccine and who should get it? So the age range in which the HPV vaccine has been uh, recommended is the age of 9 to 26, and that is based on the studies that were done um, when they were researching the HPV vaccine. Basically, all young women should get it. Um, That's a pretty definitive statement, but the alternative is the potential for cancer. Now, is it going to wipe out every single? No, because it is covering most of the um, cancers caused by the age, by the serotype um, that's within the vaccine. And actually now we have nine different varieties of the um, HPV, we call it the serotypes, that it covers to cover approximately 95% of the HPV viruses that can cause cancer. So when you're saying that you can protect your young girls or um, ladies in terms of a cancer, it's mind-boggling to me to think, why not? Now, granted, everything has its downside. Um, nothing is ever risk-free, but the benefits are huge. So my, my bottom line is everyone that can get the HPV vaccine honestly should. So, like, when it came out, I was kind of bummed out because I was over 26. And I'm like, I want the shot, but I'm just too old to get it. But really, honestly, there may not be an upper age limit. Correct. Now, it may not be insurance covered and it's currently being promoted for certain age groups. But when you think about it from the perspective of not having exposure to this particular virus and then having a life event that would cause or that could potentially cause exposure, there could be lifestyle factors. You could have someone who loses their partner, who gets divorced and starts going out into the dating arena again. It could be a variety of things. That is absolutely correct. Um, One of the things that people will argue against is the latency, what we call the latency of the virus, how long it takes for the virus to cause the changes that finally lead up to uh, cancer. And it can be anywhere from 15 to 30 years latency. And so many people argue, well, if you're going to give a 40-year-old, you know, the vaccine, is it really going to help protect? One, we're living older. Two, this is when... If you think about potential lifetime, lifestyle changes that may occur, this is maybe when it happens. So, again, it's the potential to help prevent a cancer. Then there's other lifestyle factors such as smoking that can actually decrease that latency. In other words, allow for the cancer to d- develop more rapidly. So those are kinds of the factors that when I discuss with my patients, we talk about everything as it pertains to them individually. So, you know, it's kind of interesting. Just recently, the journal, the American Medical Association, talked a little bit about smoking-related cancers, said 25% up to 30% of all cancers have some relationship to smoking. And ironically, you said that's what I tell people all the time in my office. Because what you see medically is that for women who smoke, they may have a more rapidly advancing cancer than for women who don't smoke, so that there is a definite effect of smoking. Exactly. That, that really does affect their body. Absolutely. One of the, the reasons that for, uh, I will you know, speak to the cervical cancer just because we were on that topic, one of the reasons that smoking um, increases the risk of cancer in women is the, it does two things to the cervix. One is it changes the cervical consistency, allowing the HPV virus to 
attack, if you will, and stay. Um, two, it depresses the immune system, which is your body's natural fighter. It is what goes in and handles all the viruses. So you have now knocked out your defense and you've kind of opened the gates. You're, you become more susceptible. And so that interaction with the immune system is huge. Well, and I'll be honest, over the last, boy, how many years? 20 years? Maybe less than that. There really, I can't think of a good reason to smoke. I don't think there ever really was a good reason to smoke. But I find it highly ironic that if you look back in the 50s, there were ads where doctors were smoking. And I'm like, really? Were you really thinking it was a good plan? I suspect, you know, 20 years from now, we'll think of some of the stuff we do now and be like, how did we think that was good? But we're never going to be promoting smoking. I'll tell you that much. Never. So now we've talked a little bit about the HPV vaccination and how it's really, really something that anybody could get, meaning anybody could get the vaccine. And there's reasons to do it, even if you're over the age of 26. Um, But definitely if you're between the ages of 9 to 26. And now it's not just girls. They're also offering it to boys because there are some and you're a gynecologist, so you don't have to you don't have to state that. But, you know, there there basically are some cancers that men can get. They can get anal cancer. They can get, you know, genital warts, which are just hideous and horrible if you Google that and take a look at the pictures and trust me on that. Um, But certainly a lot of reasons why we wouldn't want to get exposed to this particular virus and or allow it in our body. There are other things that happen when women come in and start seeing a gynecologist. And you mentioned that, you know, just because they're told you don't need a pap smear every year doesn't mean they shouldn't come in because there's other things that gynecologists will discuss and focus on. What are some of the other things that if you saw a woman who, let's say they're they're not of childbearing years, they're about to go through menopause, what are some of the things that they need to be in worried about or concerned about or proactive about regarding their gynecologic health? So a lot of thing, um, changes that are occurring during the perimenopausal time frame has to do with the fluctuating hormone levels that we have. So it wrecks havoc on multiple systems in the body. It wrecks havoc on mood. It wrecks havoc on menstrual cycles. It wrecks havoc on skin tone. And one of the big skin areas, if you will, in the body is the vagina. And so in terms of vaginal health, there's a definite interplay between lack of hormones or loss of hormones and the vaginal environmental milieu, if you will, um, and how that makes women feel. So basically, when you go through perimenopause, if you can remember when you went through puberty, which you might not want to remember, But if you can, then you know that there were days when you were just so happy and everything was great. And then all of a sudden you'd have these hormone changes and, you know, your family would be like, what happened to you? And you didn't know either. It was all this mood effect from hormones. Kind of the same thing when you go through menopause, that you're going to have some of those same mood changes and other types of changes and things you never expected and get ready for a wild ride. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't want to get on the wild ride. I know. Let's let's let let's do something about that together. All right. Let's just be young forever. Yeah. We'll just ignore birthdays. Refuse like to that. have them. All right. I've been told by a number of patients don't get old. So <laughs> I'm like working on. I that. I get the same advice, and I'm like, really? Because I'm work. I'll try. You know, I'm still looking for that fountain of youth. All right. So when people come in and they have an examination, breast examination is part of this. Mammography is part of this. Recent controversies on when to do mammography, which, again, is somewhat based on a personal history. If you have a family history of breast cancer, if you don't, that may alter your choices on when to start. But what do you tell the majority of your 
patients to do? Because I realize that there's a personalized aspect of this. But for those people you see, when should they be doing those sorts of tests? So it's it's a little bit difficult to answer the question. And I, I wish I could just say to you flat out, um, this is what I, re- I recommend. Normally, I would say to you age 40. The guidelines have been changing for us. And depending on the society that you're looking at, it can be anywhere from age 50. So what the way that I've geared my practice now is taking the guidelines into consideration and the person that's in front of me. And we come up with a personalized plan. So exactly what you said, it really is dependent on the person in front of you. So if I have someone who is a family history that's strong, it's going to be before age 40. If I have someone we're worried about something, maybe it will be age 40. And the timing in between will also be dependent. So I try to stay with the guidelines, but when the guidelines are, if you, um, for lack of a better word, fighting with each other, then I try to kind of talk with the patient and say, okay, what would you like? And this makes sense or this makes sense for you. So it use it as a true guideline. Exactly. It's not a it's not Hard a statement fast. that has to, it's not a rule. It's not a has to be this way. You know, because I started doing mammograms at 40 because you know, I have a family history of breast cancer and I went, I don't want to do it, but I tell my patients to do it. I should really start doing this. And so, you know, for me it was sort of at the time the guidelines were 40 every year, but knowing my family history, I was just on board with that. So, it just made sense. But for some people who might still be having children in their 40s, or might be recently breastfeeding, it may not make sense to them to go ahead and do mammography. And yet it might make sense to somebody else like me whose family history would suggest you have to be extra careful. It's the personalized approach. I would say yes, with a caveat in that, unfortunately, we have seen breast cancers in young women who are breastfeeding. So it Do we really, do mammograms if you're breastfeeding, really? You can. If you want to. If you it's, feel something abnormal and there's exactly, a concern. Exactly. So maybe not as part of a screening, but maybe if you feel something abnormal yeah. or there's something detected. Because you're right. I have plenty of women who have had unfortunate situations where they've been diagnosed at a really young age. And, you know, even before 40. And then you say, how does this happen? And it's, you know, I wish we knew we could cure yeah. a lot of things. Okay, we've got a caller on the line. We have Claire on the line from Kauai. Claire, welcome to The Body Show. Hi, thanks for taking my question. Um, I tuned in just a little late, so maybe it was already answered. Is there any value to the HPV vaccine if you already had it and then, you know, it's cleared up and gone away, it was treated, but I'm assuming that it's still in the woman's body? That's a great so question, Claire. So you, you're wanting to know for someone who has had the consequences of HPV, HPV, whether it be abnormal cervical cells or even cervical cancer and have it treated, do they benefit from getting a vaccination? Great question. Dr. Sultan? Hello, Claire. Thank you for the question. So that is actually a common question that many women have. And the answer is, yes, there is benefit. Now, the HPV vaccine is not meant to cure something that you already have, but because it has different components in it. So the old uh, vaccine had four different serotypes. The new vaccine has nine. You will still be covered for the, the other ones that you didn't have. 
So that's a really good that's a really good thought because sometimes we wonder would somebody actually have any additional protection and the answer is yeah uh, you know if you and it's similar to what we do with hepatitis so hepatitis is something that a lot of people have been worried about hepatitis A but in particular when we're talking B and C we're talking about is it you know if you have hep C should you get vaccines for B yes because subsequent infection with another virus, you're more susceptible already. Exactly. And this could actually make things worse. Exactly. So if you've already had a problem and you don't get vaccinated, you could even, if you get exposed to another one of those strains, it could be an even bigger issue for you. Correct. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. A.S. Sultan. She's a gynecologist practicing in downtown Honolulu. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more about some of the other common things that happen to women as we get older, frequent bladder infections, concerns about vaginal prolapse, all these sorts of conditions that sometimes we have a tendency not to put at the forefront of our health care. As always, our show is your show. You can join us at 941-3689, toll-free, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. YouTube is a multi-billion dollar idea that is oh so much more than cat videos. Other people can be entertaining. Lots of people out there can produce content that other people want to see. I'm Kai Rizdahl, YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki. Next time. On Conversations from the Corner Office, we'll have the day's business news as well and the numbers from Wall Street next time on Marketplace. This evening at 6, following The Body Show. Aloha, this is Jose Fajardo, President and General Manager of Hawaii Public Radio, with many thanks to the over 2,990 listeners who called in during the most recent HPR fund drive. Over $872,000 was raised by listeners just like you to continue to provide the quality programming that you enjoy. Thank you, too, to the 922 new members of HPR. Mahalo for your support. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii, Ulupono Initiative, and Hawaii Pacific University. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. A.S. Sultan. She's a gynecologist in downtown Honolulu. And today we're talking about women's health issues. What can women do to stay healthy and active as they're, no matter how old they are? And what are some of the common gynecologic issues that happen that sometimes women may not realize there are some treatments that can help them to feel better and not have to suffer in silence, as so many may do? Now, as always, our conversation is your conversation. And if you've got a question or concern, or you've had some gynecologic issues in the past and want to know, is that normal or should you be doing something different about it? You can always give us a holler at 941-3689, toll free 877-941-3689. Now, before the break, we were talking a little bit about mammograms and when to do that. We also talked with Claire from Kauai about the appropriateness of HPV vaccination a lot of other things happen around the time of perimenopause into menopause. And sometimes women will feel as though they're experiencing symptoms of vaginal dryness. That might lead to frequent bladder infections. Why do these things happen? Is it because certain tissues are sensitive to estrogen or rather the soon-to-be lack of estrogen? Absolutely. Um, one of the things that 
I had mentioned before in terms of what happens around the perimenopausal menopausal time frame is the the one we're avoiding. We're the one we're yeah, the avoiding, one we're avoiding together. Absolutely, right. um, is that things run amok, and <laughs> I love that word. They run amok. That's why we're avoiding it because we don't want to run amok. No, but we like you control know, chaos. Not absolutely, things out of the head. kudos to all the women who are going through perimenopause and menopause. I will be you someday. I will look to you for advice. So things run amok. Tell me about what's running amok. <laughs> so among them is we talked about moods and how people complain about that and their relationships. But also another thing that can impact relationships is what happens with, within the vagina. So the vagina, as I mentioned, is another skin-bearing area. Um, it actually is very sensitive to estrogen. Estrogen has a number of uh, impact um, in that area, in that it is what helps with uh, lubrication. It is what helps with keeping uh, tissue pliable, elastic. Um, so when we go through menopause and we are starting to lose or have lost estrogen, we start to see changes in the vagina. Um, we see changes in the pH. We see changes in the elasticity. So these things lead to what we call the dry, irritable vagina. Um, it can make intercourse more painful and again that can impact relationships it can lead to bladder infections because you have thinner tissue and more prone to um, bacteria getting in places where you know there was a defense and so there's a lot that we can do for that and there's more coming down the pipeline which I'm actually excited um, in terms of so it's more than just using estrogen cream or taking estrogen. You know, years ago, before the Women's Health Initiative, lots of women who went through menopause, the first thing we would do is say, take some estrogen, you're going to feel better. And a lot of them did. But then we found there were some risks of doing that long term. And now the mode of, of action is not to just run to just replace your estrogen and keep the estrogen levels of a 30-year-old forever. It's let's respectfully look at how the body responds to this. And maybe that's not what nature intended for a reason. So we determined there were some risks of estrogen replacement what about topical estrogen? Does that actually help? And is that safe? Or are we still putting ourselves at some of the risks that we found of estrogen? So that's an excellent question. And you mentioned the Women's Health uh, Initiative and the impact that it had. When that first that study first came out, it was amazing. I mean, we all thought menopause, women prior to that were safe from heart attacks after that. You know, they were getting heart attacks, so let's give everyone estrogen. So this, this was a case in which a study actually really helped. The problem was that it really took estrogen off the market in terms of things that we can do. And now we're slowly replacing and saying, okay, it's actually okay to use estrogen, but use it judiciously. What that means is we try to use the lowest dose possible for the shortest period of time. This short period of time may be indefinitely as long as we're not systemic, for example, which comes to your point, and systemic means it gets into the system, um, comes to your point of topical, which is just applied to the skin in specific areas. Um, the vagina, as I said, is a great area to apply estrogen and estrogen back in where in the actual area that it needs to be does wonders. So I use estrogen on a lot of patients because of that. Now the key is 
the skin of the vagina is a great absorbing agent. So we want to make sure that we use a dose that doesn't allow it to go into the system and cause the detrimental effects that we had been seeing. All right. So that answers the question. You can use estrogen, maybe not in a pill form indefinitely, but you can use it topically. That and was a very short way of saying what I said. Sure. So perfect. Thank you. For those who need the pill, okay, like work it. with your gynecologist. Lowest dose is best, but sometimes you can transition to the topical and it's much safer. Yes. All right. We've got a couple of callers on the line. We've got Anella calling in from Eva Beach. Anella, welcome to The Body Show. Aloha, and thank you for taking my call. I appreciate it. Thanks for calling. I have, thank you. I have two questions. One is related just to what um, you folks were just talking about, which is, I guess, what I would think of as hormone replacement therapy, adding the estrogen to our bodies. Um, I'm 54. And I'm going through still kind of perimenopause a little bit late. Um, and what I wonder is, with um, uh, the doctor was speaking and was talking about the things that are helpful and maybe not so helpful with um, that. Could you clarify that for me? So do you mean hormone replacement in a pill or topical? I guess... Um, Either and or, because I've been thinking about both of them, and I'm really conflicted about what to do with my body. I know that my body suffers from different things from not having estrogen and then doesn't suffer <laughs> from different things from not having estrogen. So I feel um, like I'm not sure which way to lean toward on that one. Gotcha. So essentially, you know, what you're saying is, which is safest for you? And I think... I bet, you know, Dr. Sultan, you would agree that is such a personal decision for women yeah. that, you know, you kind of need to know a bit more about your history, family history. Is this safe? What other medications do you take? And the safest, lowest dose of whatever you do, I would think would be the best thing you could do. But here's the good news. Dr. Sultan, correct me if I'm wrong. If you try hormones one way, let's just say you decide to use topical and it doesn't work, you could transition to go to pills and vice versa. That you make a decision and it doesn't have to be forever. Any decision in medicine is like that. So absolutely. Fabulous. So and you could try one thing and then change it. Absolutely. And Anila, I just want to let you know, you're not alone. This is like the common plight of all perimenopausal women out there. And to answer your question is it depends on exactly what your symptoms are because we treat to the symptoms. So if your symptoms are simply vaginal, then topical makes sense for you. But if your symptoms, like I said, was mood, for example, well, maybe even instead of hormones, a little low-dose mood stabilizer like an antidepressant or any something like that might be more beneficial and then you avoid the hormone problem. So it really is dependent on you and your symptoms and what you're looking for. Thank you. And the main reason I called was that I have a family um, history of ovarian cancer on the paternal side of my family um, to my grandma and great-grandmother. Um, they didn't die from ovarian cancer, but I'm wondering what, if any kind of symptoms there are that I should be looking out for or should be, or my um, gynecologist should be looking out for that would help us to make sure that I'm, I'm okay and I'm not suffering from that. The reason I ask is that I am a um, survivor of melanoma and 
So because of that, I've heard, I don't know if it's true, but I've heard that that makes you a little more susceptible to other kinds of cancers. Wow, Anella, you're asking some absolutely fantastic questions. So the first question is a very difficult one. Symptoms of ovarian cancer, excuse me, to watch out for. Unfortunately, I think the answer is there usually aren't any in the early stages. Correct. Unfortunately, ovarian cancer is one of the those cancers that we, we still do not have any great screening or diagnostic tests, um, any lab tests, nothing like that. And that's part of the reason why we do encourage you to see a gynecologist, but even then it's hard to pick up on. The symptoms that are commonly reported are very general symptoms like bloating or a lack of appetite, but that's that can be from anything. That could be from something you ate, you know, last night. So it's really hard to answer that question because we don't have an answer to that question yet. So the other thing that comes up is, is having any other type of cancer, let's talk specifically melanoma, does that make you more susceptible to other forms of cancer? Um, I feel like I'm saying it depends a lot, but it really does because if you got got melanoma from sitting in the sun, for example, and and that was how you uh, acquired it, then no, you don't have necessarily a genetic propensity, but if you have it at a young age and then um, you may have other uh, genetic propensity to other cancers, so... It's it kind could of be. Idea. It depends. Yeah. Well, and I think the the hard part about that is, and the, the hard but good part, is that what we are learning about cancer genetics is exploding, is we're now finding that there are some genetic abnormalities that are associated with melanoma, but also could be associated with skin, you know, other types of cancer like lung cancer. So we're finding that there are some common themes in cancers that we used to think are totally distinct and separate entities. So part of what the cancer world, and we've had a couple of oncologists on recently, are discovering is that they're now, you hear a lot more about immunotherapy, genetic targeted therapy towards cancer. So depending on what we find out in the next few years, there are some cancer associations. So there are some families where a lot of people have cancer and they die from cancer, whether it be breast cancer, colon cancer, ovarian cancer. There are certain clusters of cancers that are similar. But now we're finding that there are certain genetic abnormalities that are connecting cancers which are totally separate and we never would have put those two together. So on the good side, the world of cancer is exploding. Our knowledge is just exponentially increasing. On the bad side, it means that it's more difficult to answer your question for right now today. So it was a, you know, really, if your melanoma is because you were a sun worshiper, then it may not necessarily mean that you're suddenly going to be more susceptible to other cancers. But if it was clear out of the blue, unusual, in a non-sun exposed area, that kind of raises a red flag and says, hey, we've got to be extra careful. But with that, no matter how careful we are, certain cancers are hard to diagnose. Ovarian in your field, pancreatic in my field, there's a couple of things that we don't get a lot of warning about. And then boom, it's there. And if I could add one more point to that, um, there is an interplay between environment and your genetic propensity. So let's say you do have um, a a gene that makes you at risk of cancer, Let's say lung cancer, because this is an easy one. And then you smoke, you've just upped your risk. So things in the environment that you can do to prevent yourself from getting cancer, 
that's huge. And that's part of what I talk about in terms of prevention, making sure that you're doing the right thing for yourself. So if you do have that genetic propensity, and maybe we don't know about it now, but we may find out in the future, you're still protecting yourself. Excellent point. Be careful with some lifestyle activities that you do. Be careful with what you put in your body. Be careful with different forms of of toxic exposures. You just don't know. So why increase your risk of having a serious problem? All right. Now we've had people call in Dr. Sultan and kind of ask questions about hormones and menopause and, and what women should be doing. There's other reasons that we should be looking at trying to keep the tissues in the vaginal area from getting too affected by hormone loss. And part of that has to do with some other conditions like vaginal prolapse or issues you mentioned with painful intercourse. What are some of the things we can do? You mentioned that hormone cream can be helpful. What else What else can be helpful? You said you were excited about what's coming down the pike. What? What is that? So in the past, this is kind of like a very large question because we talked we're talking about prolapse we're talking about incontinence or loss of urine we're talking about vaginal dryness so if we're talking about let's let's stick with vaginal dryness for right now if we're talking about that the traditional thing that we have um, prescribed is hormones to combat the uh, the dryness um, lubrication if you if you didn't want hormones um, but in terms of anything else there had been a lot lacking. It was either hormones, lubrication, or that was it. Now I've been following a new field called vaginal rejuvenation, if you will, but um, really predominantly vaginal laser. And what the laser does is kind of, if anyone is experienced with aesthetics and what it does on the face, it basically can tone face and make people look younger, it's kind of doing something similar within the vagina. It is rejuvenating the the vagina, if you will. The studies are very limited. The studies are very fresh and new, small populations, but um, we're getting more and more out. But basically what we're finding is with these laser treatments, there may be tissue change where it becomes back to looking like a younger vagina where it's more elasticity, more collagen, things that make up the texture of the vagina. There's more lubrication that happens, um, more blood vessels within the area. So while I don't necessarily say this is absolutely now a new treatment, I say this is a great possibility and this is something that, you know, it would be great to have in our armamentarium in terms of treating now vaginal dryness. Um, It's a very interesting topic and I know that there's a lot of magazines out there that are like talking about the Kim Kardashian. I I swore I'd never say that, but that you just kind of <laughs> vagina. But there you go. <laughs> so really, there's some medical reasons why people may want to take a look at this. It's not just cosmetic. There's actual Correct. medical reasons why they Correct. would. All right, we're going to explore this a little bit more in depth. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. A.S. Sultan. She is a gynecologist in Honolulu, and we're talking a little bit about something that a lot of people may not have heard of, at least not in the medical world, vaginal rejuvenation. Why would you want to do this, and what medical 
problems could it potentially help you avoid? And how else could this actually make things a little more comfortable in your life? When we come back, we're going to talk more about it. If you have a question or you have a concern about what's happening with your gynecologic health, you can always join us at 941-3689, toll free 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. On the next humankind, they felt that somehow or other we have to create structures that will mitigate and lessen these threats of demagoguery, of appealing to the selfish interests of people. An historian on how America's founders hoped to prevent rabble-rousers from inflaming people's prejudices. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for Humankind. This evening at 6.30, following Marketplace. KAHU 91.3, beaming from our new transmitters atop Kulani Cone on Hawaii Island, will be coming on board this Wednesday afternoon. Stay tuned for updates here or find out more at hawaiipublicradio.org. Get your radio presets ready, East Hawaii, for HPR2 at 91.3. And be sure you've adjusted your HPR1 tuning to the new 89.1 in East Hawaii. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. A.S. Sultan. She's a gynecology expert in downtown Honolulu. And right before the break, we were talking about what are some of the changes that occur in women hormonally as we get older and what kind of medical symptoms could that lead to? Now, before we go any further in discussing, discussing the latest in, in vaginal repair and rejuvenation, let's talk with Sarah from Mililani. Sarah, welcome to The Body Show. Aloha. I love your show. Um, I'm a family nurse practitioner and a psych clinical nurse specialist. And I have a lot of patients that come in that are being treated with antidepressants for depression. And they can't tolerate hormones. And they have low libido. And I would try to refer them to specialists so that to find out if there are options for them. And I didn't know if you could speak to that for me. It's a real good question. So basically, they're being treated for with antidepressants. For mm-hmm. hormone symptoms? No, mostly for, like, major depression. For depression, okay. And yeah, so, they're, like, chronically depressed, and, you know, low libido is an ongoing issue for them, and maybe they tried some hormones, and it actually worsened their depression. And so we have to find something else that will work for them because it's, you know, affecting their relationships. Sure, that's a real difficult question because part of the trouble is depression can give you low libido. Yeah. Certain antidepressants can actually worsen low libido. So now you're sort of fighting against potentially a side effect of a medicine and what other medicine can they use. That's a tough one, Dr. Sultan. The first thing that comes to mind for me, and I know this is, this is you know, why I'm an internist and not a gynecologist, meaning <laughs> this is coming to my mind and it could be totally off base, is something that's testosterone-based. We talk about low libido. Am I just, am I, am I totally out in left field there? You're actually not. I'm um, not in left field. You are not. I'm in the right field. <laughs> okay, I feel better already. Tell me about how that could actually help somebody who is depressed, who's on antidepressants, maybe increase libido, help them to feel better. 
So one of the things when I have patients come in and, and talk to me about their sexuality and their sexual functioning is trying to really hone down what is the problem. And there's a great questionnaire. It's unfortunately a little bit long, but it really um, breaks it down into which area is the problem. And sometimes we can tease apart um, the problem based on that. Your your discussion about, you know, maybe it's a side effect of the antidepressant is huge because we do know that there's a lot of them that do that. Um, testosterone absolutely can be a problem. We have to be very careful with testosterone because it is another hormone. And so one of the things that I like to do is, is just get a hormone level, kind of get an idea of where we're at. So a lot of the patients will get baseline hormones, kind of take it from there and see where we're going, where do we need to go. Because if you have normal testosterone, I don't know if increasing it is really going to be helpful more than harmful. So, But if it's low for women, because women do have testosterone. Correct. Certainly not the same level as men, but women do have a certain level. If that's low, potentially could be a source of intervention. It is. It is. But you have to be very careful of it. Very careful because there's side effects. Exactly. As with everything. Exactly. And so estrogen is a hormone. Progesterone is a hormone. Testosterone is a hormone. It sounds like in this particular situation, Sarah, that's a real tough scenario. That it could be the medicines giving the side effect. It could be a hormonal side effect. Kind of looks like it would be see an expert like a gynecologist, endocrinologist, do some of the hormone testing, and then decide if there's something else that can be worked out with some of the antidepressants, if possible. I, I see the tight spot you're in. Thank you very much, because, you know, I'd like to have some way of giving people hope, um, you know, so that they can have a full life. Um, so I appreciate your answer. Thank you. Thank well, you. you're welcome, Sarah, because I don't think I gave you a good one. <laughs> At least I gave you some some ideas. I feel better, some ideas. Definitely not a, an absolute, here's what you do all the time. Um, okay, so difficult scenarios when we're dealing with hormones and people as they get older. And we talked a little bit about how that affects vaginal tissue. And so one of the reasons why women may want to consider procedures like this is because it may make sexual activity more comfortable. It may also help with some medical concerns that they may have. What are some of the medical uses of treatment with vaginal laser laser sort of treatments? So I'm going to have to say that right now there is no medical treatment with a vaginal laser, right? So we so don't know of anything Nothing right now in which we're we are doing can research. Use. Okay. Where it is still considered something that we're following and watching, it is something that is out there and, as, and a lot of people are using it aesthetically. Um, and we're seeing the results from people using it in aesthetics. We're seeing potential for medical. So if I talk about potential medical treatment, I have to say that as sure. my, my what introduction. What is the potential medical? Thank you. Sorry. you know, a lot of people have done this for, you know, it's been sort of one of these sort of things you might read about in Cosmo or something. Exactly. And for some women, it's been, I've given birth to a lot of children. I want to tighten the vaginal muscle. It makes sexual activity more pleasurable, et cetera. So they've had a reason to do it under the aesthetic category. And we're now able to study some of those women and maybe notice that there are some things they have in common or some potential applications. So we'll be very careful to clarify the word potential. What would those applications potentially be? So even for the tightening aspect, you have to, it's not where it's going to have somewhere, like think about it on the outside of the body. If you were to do a tightening on 
flabby skin, it's only going to tighten so much. So it's a very minuscule amount. So you may get a benefit from that even from there. What it has more to do with just bringing back the vaginal health to what it used to be. So there's studies that show that it can uh, decrease the pH to what it used to be and so you're less prone to infections. It can increase the vascularity within the vagina, and therefore you become more lubricated and moist and not have that dry vagina so that you are more comfortable during sex. There is a slight tightening effect, and so sex may become pleasurable again. Part of what happens when we go from our uh, reproductive age to our menopausal age is within the vagina instead of having a lot of um, we call them rugae which are basically folds it becomes very smooth and so the loss of friction happens but now we get that back so we're seeing that and so it might not be a tightening per se but that coming back so having said all of that that's part of the potential treatment but for women who don't want hormones or cannot have hormones, this may be actually a really good treatment down the pipeline to offer them. And I've seen studies in which they're looking at women who have had breast cancer and cannot take hormones. Sure. And if so, you've had an estrogen receptor positive exactly. breast cancer, you may be on treatment, Arimidex, Tamoxifen, et cetera, that's an anti-estrogen. And you may not want to go anywhere near estrogen, particularly in the gynecologic area, because you're afraid of what we talked earlier, the systemic absorption, and the fact that your tumor grew in the presence of estrogen. So there's this whole group of women who may actually have a much more beneficial response to something like this to give them the same benefit that they could have had with estrogen, but because of their other medical conditions, now estrogen isn't possible for them just forget it. They can't do exactly. that. So that's really where I started looking at this as a field and, you know, kind of taking it just in terms of postmenopausal also. And so I'm really excited and I'm waiting for those big studies to come out. And there is one that's looking at 1500 women. Prior to that, we're looking at 50 or less. So we're seeing and all of the results have been very promising. So that's good. I'm, I'm liking that. What else do you think is coming down the pike? You know, if we look at medicine and we sort of look at the trajectory of when we used to say hormones for all, and now we're saying hormones for none, and we're moving towards hormones for some, what do you think is coming down in the future? What else is, what else is heading towards us that might be exciting and help women as we, although we deny it, get to our perimenopausal, perimenopausal years? Well, Give me some hope. I was going to say, you know, I wish I could tell you even more, but I think the vaginal laser, one of the good things that is coming out of that is the focus has now come on women's issues. And so if you look at the aesthetic world, one of the biggest areas that is the trend that's increasing is feminine, what we call feminine rejuvenation. And for me, forget about the aesthetics. It's focusing on women finally and so we're having our viagra moment exactly you know men had the viagra moment for a while we haven't found a female viagra but it's now becoming let's talk about these issues for women too correct even if it's just bringing up the discussion exactly that we haven't had before so that's really hopefully where we'll head in the future. Now, there are, some, there are some caveats to what we do in medical care. And, you know, when we think about women who have had 
hysterectomies, for example, had ovaries removed, etc., where they're going through some of these hormone changes overnight, or they're going through some other anatomical changes that may affect some other organ or structures in the gynecologic area. Is this potentially something that could help that as well? I mean, I just think to myself of, if you've had a hysterectomy, then you may have some issues with potentially having some vaginal prolapse, not having the same, the same anatomical situation going on, this could potentially transform that area as well. That's going to be a little bit harder because the it depends, uh, again, there's that word, on the amount of prolapse. So if you have very minimal prolapse and you just need a little bit of tightening, sure, that it might be a benefit. They're, they're looking into that. They're looking into it in terms of incontinence. They're looking into it in terms of what we call atrophy or the dryness of the vagina. So those are definitely all areas that they're looking into. If you have significant prolapse, think about it like on your body outside when people have dramatic weight loss and they have saggy skin, you just need surgery for that. There, you know, that's the end of the story. Uh, Laser is not going to help with that. So early phase, it might be helpful. Correct. As it goes to later phases, it's not really going to do much. Exactly. All right. We've mentioned a couple of times uh, issues with frequent bladder infections. And one of the questions that I think comes up a lot is, how many infections is too many? When we think about women, particularly in the perimenopausal age, you know, my general guideline is to say to women, listen, if you have more than six bladder infections in a year, there is something underlying. We've got to rule out some other problem, whether it be, you know, a, an issue with extra sugar so that potentially you're, you're having diabetes and that's causing an increase in bacterial infections, or there's some other anatomic cause that's going on in your bladder. Retention, or often it's just, I don't drink enough water, I don't go to the bathroom when I have to. How many infections is too many? So I'm going to expand that question and say not just with UTIs, for example, but another common uh, infection that I see as a gynecologist is yeast infections. So six months, six times in a year is a good rule of thumb. Or even if I've heard from them within the last couple of months and they've had like two or three already, my question is, what is going on? Why? Am I not treating appropriately? Is there something else going on? Do they have a resistant yeast or bacteria for the UTI, that kind of thing. So it really is dependent on how frequently I've seen them in a short period of time, or if I'm going to take it over a year, how many within the year. And for, you mentioned yeast infections, that can be a subsequent complication of treating with antibiotics. Exactly. So depending on the cause of the yeast infection, is it is it iatrogenic or the body has a problem itself or is it because they've taken three courses of antibiotics for some other condition skin conditions respiratory right. conditions something else so i guess i'm starting to use your favorite word it, it depends, depends. <laughs> so in that situation as women get older incontinence becomes another issue is female incontinence tied at all to issues with bladder and if they've had hysterectomies or if they've had multiple children is there a connection there Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can have prolapse, you can have incomplete emptying, you can, I mean, there are so many different things. So again, that's one of the things when a woman comes in with a specific complaint, we sit down and we really pull it apart to see what what is the cause. We've got something fun. All right. We have Peter on the line. Peter from Honolulu hey. is calling the gynecologist. Yes, Peter, what can we do for can you? Can you hear me okay? We can hear you fine. Okay. Hey, Aya. This is Peter McNally. 
Oh, um, hello, Dr. McNally. I'm glad you you're Dr. McNally because I was uh, wondering a little bit about Peter calling the gynecologist. But okay, you're Dr. <laughs> McNally. Well, you got it. No problem. So, Mike, I just wanted to make a, a quick comment. The, I kind of looked into the laser a little bit. It's quite expensive, but hopefully over time it will become less expensive. So that's the first thing. And the second is I'm always a little bit upset when people get so worried about vaginal estrogen. Even in the case of um, breast cancer, the amount that's absorbed is fairly small and, and not really as worrisome as I think it's generally thought of. Those really, Peter? I, I'm a wimp about it, I'll tell you. I just get all worried about it. Should I not be so worried? Well, you should be cognizant of it, but I don't think worried. You've made me feel better already. And that is an excellent point that I um, neglected to actually say is that I have used it on breast cancer survivors, but it is a major discussion. And so it's nice Absolutely. if possible we have something else to offer them because usually it's either risk of this, which if we're, uh, if we're using it appropriately, then it should not be systemic, as we said before, but there still is that risk. Yes, and I, I share Dr. Sultan's excitement over the potential for the uh, vaginal laser. So uh, kudos. Good job. Thank you, Dr. McNally. Nice to hear from you. All right. Thanks for giving us a holler there. It was always a little, you know, a couple of years ago, I had a gynecologist on and we had a lot of male callers and, you know, it kind of put my poor gynecologist in a slightly unusual position. So I'm so glad Peter was Peter McNally. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. But, uh, you know, certainly we've learned a lot about what we can do. I've learned a lot about what it, what I shouldn't be scared of doing. And it's really helped bring women's health to the forefront. I think that's a very important thing to do because often we don't put ourselves first. It's everybody else around us. And, you know, we have this is now our Viagra moment. We're going to call it the vagina moment. I love it. And I'm now there. we're going to take a look and see what can we do to keep ourselves healthy and enjoying our lives as time goes on. One of the curious things that uh, that we found, and we talked about it before we started the show, is, you know, just when you think that your sexual life might end in your 50s or 60s, uh-uh-uh, what did we both talk about? We talked about that article in the New York Times talking about the increased rate of STDs in older populations. The octogenarians. Yep. The highest rate of increase in STDs in the 80-year-olds. So just because you can't get pregnant does not mean that you can't get an STD. So please, all you women out there, make sure you still are carrying those condoms for those men. Be protected. There you go. Now, if women want to hear more about vaginal rejuvenation, if they want to hear more about what is going on in gynecology and they want to find you, where can they do that? Um, you can visit me on my website at honuwh.com. Or come and see my lovely, beautiful downtown office. Shameless plug there. Um, it's in the Pioneer Plaza building that's right across from the Walmart. I have dedicated parking for patients, so please feel free to come. And the phone number to the office is 638-3100. You've got parking downtown. I have parking downtown. I am removing barriers for women to come and see me. That's how strongly I feel about having women come on a yearly basis for their health to prevent problems. 
that you even have parking downtown. Exactly. Which is extremely important because we want women to be able to have the time, have the flexibility, have the freedom, and they can even see you during their lunch hour, make appointments, have all of their gynecologic care needs provided. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Hose. We are going to have to do it again as we get older and go through that perimenopause, menopausal time I'm so not looking forward to. All right. Well, if you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on Hawaii Public Radio, follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on Facebook. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Thanks to all who supported us during our fall fund drive. And we will see you next week right here Monday on The Body Show, where we'll talk about joint inflammation and how we can keep our joints feeling better as we get older. Perfect topic after today's discussion. We will see you then. Woo!